Galatians chapter 6, the final chapter, the final countdown, the beginning of the end of the Apostle Paul's urgent appeal to one church not to lose the gospel. Here is my obnoxious three-sentence summary. Don't stop believing. Everyone's favorite line from Journey. Don't stop believing. Don't stop believing that Jesus has done everything for people who deserve nothing. Don't stop believing that salvation is all by grace through faith in Christ. Don't stop believing that you are beloved, adopted children of God. Don't stop believing that you are free. Free from the tyranny of sin, the law, and even death itself. Don't stop believing. This is chapter 5. Don't stop believing that you are now filled with with the life of Christ through the Spirit. Paul Paul urged us in chapter 5 to walk by the Spirit, and he ended the last chapter with keep in step with the Spirit. And those words, keep in step with the Spirit, hang as a banner over Galatians chapter 6. Keep in step with the Spirit. How exactly does a Christian or a church keep in step with? with the Spirit. That's what chapter 6 is about to answer. And Paul begins his answer by writing, we keep in step with the Spirit by performing miracles, swinging from chandeliers. We keep in step with the Spirit by addressing one another's sins. Not what you were expecting, I can tell, by the look on your faces. (laughs) Me neither. (laughs) But let's take him at his word. Let's read his words. Galatians chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. I'll read through verse 5 and then pray. Galatians 6, 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear their own load. The very words of God. Would you join me in a brief prayer for understanding? Lord, your word gives life. Your word directs us. Your word revives us. Your word is a power in this world, more powerful than anything we can imagine. And that power is at work in us now as the Bible is open before us and proclaimed from the pulpit. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would help us understand this passage clearly and that it would land on our hearts with power. So, Lord, we humbly now ask you to teach and instruct and guide us. We are ready to listen. 
and pray that you will meet us as we do. In Jesus' name, amen. If you see something, say something. We've all seen that phrase at airports and on billboards and posted in public places. It was, if you're interested, implemented and trademarked first by the New York Metropolitan Transportation Authority in the early 2000s in the wake of the 9-11 terrorist attacks. And then in 2010, it was licensed by the Department of Homeland Security and is still in use today, not only in the U.S., but agencies around the world have picked it up. One article from the Washington Post described the saying as, quote, the unofficial slogan of post-9-11 America. The mantra, posted on billboards and public transportation, turns all of us into, and I don't like this phrase, turns all of us into amateur anti-terrorism crusaders. (laughs) Any of us, it suggests, could foil the next Osama bin Laden as long as we stay alert. If you see something, say something. That phrase, with a ton of qualifications around it, could be a fair summary of the Apostle Paul's encouragement to spirit-filled Christians in verse 1 of Galatians chapter 6. Just look again. Verse 1. Brothers, and to be clear, this is addressed to men and women in the church. Could be brothers and sisters. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Caught doesn't mean entangled or stuck in a pattern of sin. It means discovered. Think, think caught red-handed or got caught with his hand in the cookie jar. We don't need to go out looking for it right? We don't need to go out looking for it. This is just, it's discovered. It comes to light in some way or another, either because the person confesses it, or we observe it, or somebody else alerts us to it. We become aware of another brother or sister committing sin. We now have a job to do. You might think that this instruction isn't for every Christian because it has this nice little, little qualifier, you who are spiritual. Well, that must be some subset of super saints in the church, right? Or the leaders or pastors, they're the spiritual people. They get to deal with this. But you who are spiritual is just another way to say spirit-filled Christians, which, sorry, is all Christians. <laughs> every Christian has the spirit. If you become aware of sin in another brother or sister, restore them. That's the instruction. Get involved. Talk to them about it. Help them with it. That's the instruction. Now, doesn't that make you nervous? I've already heard the nervous laughter in the room. I've been nervously laughing in my study all week. That makes me nervous. (laughs) Is the Apostle Paul turning all of us into a bunch of amateur anti-sin crusaders? I don't want to be in a church full of amateur anti-sin crusaders or professional anti-sin crusaders for that matter. I think that sounds worse. I don't think I've ever seen one of those and I hope never to. That sounds like a nightmare. A church full of people telling each other what's wrong with them. (laughs) But as I studied this passage and prayed and thought, Lord, what would you have for us in this passage? I realized, 
I'm not really worried about you (laughs) becoming a church full of amateur anti-sin crusaders. (laughs) I know you too well. You're too gracious, (laughs) too forgiving. You're not surprised by sin either in yourself or in one another. And you know, oh, this is my, okay, Sovereign Grace, my favorite thing about you. You know what good news the gospel is to those who know they've sinned. I'm not worried about us being a church full of obnoxious sin police. Actually, if anything, we may lean in the opposite direction. We may spot sin in one another or encounter sin in one another and look the other way. We may be strongly tempted, and I I feel this temptation personally, confessing it right now, strongly tempted to disobey or disregard or gloss over the instruction that God has given us through Paul here in Galatians 6, 1. We might see something and say nothing, and that would make us over time very vulnerable. And here, we got to feel this, God is urging us into the messiness of one another's lives. Now, in the flow of the letter, this shouldn't surprise us. This shouldn't surprise us at all because the Spirit's program of of sanctification is is fine-tuned to root out sin in our lives so that we look more and more like Jesus. And part of His program, this is what we're finding out, part of His program is to use Spirit-filled brothers and sisters as His instruments in that work. Think of a church full of Spirit-filled, gospel-centered, gentle, kind, peaceful, patient people who are actively helping one another bear the heavy burden of fighting sin. Well, that's a beautiful picture. Spirit-filled Christians helping one another fight sin by the power and wisdom of the Spirit. Or to say it another way, when we see something, we say something. Now, I realize this feels like an invitation to walk on a field full of landmines. And it is, frankly. This is, this is an invitation to walk on a field full of landmines. I know you've got a thousand questions running through your head. I could see the puzzled look on your faces. Me too. And I'm certain that most, if not all of us, have experienced people dealing with others' sins and faults and weaknesses in painful and harmful ways. There's a possibility if we try to do this, we are going to screw it up. In fact, not a possibility. Certainty that if we try to do this, we are going to screw it up. But I want us to capture Paul's vision. Because this is keeping in step with the Spirit. So we've got to catch this. Now, this instruction needs a ton of qualification. And if you noticed, after giving this instruction in verse 1, Paul spends most of the paragraph qualifying that instruction. So we're going to dig in. Three ways I want to point out to you from the passage, three ways he encourages us to help each other when we discover sin. Three widths that will serve as the three points of my outline. I'll give them to you as we go. How are we to help one another when we discover sin? Point number one, with gentleness. With gentleness. Look with me at verse 2. Familiar, often quoted phrase. It's the translator heading right there in our ESV Bibles. Bear 
one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens is shorthand for everything we do to help other Christians with the difficulties of life. Uh, that's the best way to say it. Shorthand for everything that you would do to help another Christian with the difficulties they face, and there are lots of them. The person in step with the Spirit is a person ready to help others, ready to throw themselves into the lives of others. The Spirit gives his energy and attention to caring for the church, right? So it's no surprise that those who walk with him would also be giving their energy and attention to caring for the church as well. The next phrase, fulfill the law of Christ, is certainly a contrast to the false teachers who are troubling the Galatians and wanted to bring the church back under the old covenant, back under the old law. And people have puzzled over what exactly the law of Christ means, and I'm not going to enter into that debate. I think its clearest definition comes from Jesus himself in John 13, 34. Jesus said, a new commandment, here we go, a new law, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Jesus commands us, excuse me, to love each other in all kinds of ways. <laughs> Again, that's a banner over everything you do as a Christian in the church. Love each other in all kinds of ways, and those ways are all defined for us throughout the rest of the Bible. That's the law of Christ. It's brought on purpose. The point, verse 2, is that those who walk with the Spirit, those who keep up with the Spirit, stay aligned with the Spirit, those people will love and serve the church. Which is what Paul wrote in the last chapter, verse 13. He said, through love, serve one another. And he's now expanding on that. So in this section, bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ, these broad strokes are applied to a very specific burden. The burden of indwelling sin. I'm not going to surprise you by what I say next. Christians still sin. <laughs> no surprise, right? Those you've been around, Christians still sin. Real Christians really sin. Now, what happens when a Christian sins? What happens when a Christian sins? We've talked a lot about this in Galatians. Well, the first thing is something that doesn't happen. They don't lose out on anything that God has promised them through Christ. They don't. They're still forgiven. Still forgiven, even when they sin. This is wonderful about being a Christian. Wonderful about the songs we've already sung this morning. Christians are forgiven for every sin, past, present, and future, on the basis of Christ's death on the cross. Saved from the penalty of our sin, one day we'll be completely saved from the presence of sin, but currently, this is the tension, currently being saved from the power of sin. Another definition for sanctification, to be saved from the power of sin, progressively, piece by piece. And that is why we wrestle with indwelling sin. That is why you have not found a sinless church and you won't until the other side of glory. 
Sin continues to wreak havoc in our lives and in our churches. Sin continues to damage our fellowship with God and weaken our faith. It continues to bring dishonor and reproach upon the name of Jesus. Sin continues to injure our relationships with ourselves and with one another. Indwelling sin is a huge burden that every Christian must bear. A war, as Eric described in the last couple weeks. Fighting indwelling sin is exhausting. Cleaning up the messes it makes. Tiring. And it is mercy from God that he calls other spirit-filled brothers and sisters to bear that burden with us. Before we think too much, about helping others with their sin, we should pause for a moment and prepare ourselves to be the one that needs this to be done for them. (laughs) To be on the receiving end of this kind of ministry, we should welcome this kind of ministry as as ones who will be discovered. (laughs) I know, I think in my own life, I'm probably the last person to find out about my sins. Everyone else is quite aware. By the time I get it, they're like, yep, we were waiting for you. I want to, and I hope you do too. I want to be the kind of Christian who wants other Christians to help me escape the deceptiveness and destructiveness of indwelling sin. Uh, It is a great burden, I feel that, but thankfully, God has given me, (laughs) you, sorry about that, but he's given you to me to help me with it, and me to you and you to each other. So, how do we do this? How do we do this? Back to verse 1. Paul's instruction, verse 1, has a very broad scope. Did you notice the two any's in verse 1? If anyone is caught in any transgression, that is about as broad as it gets. He doesn't say men should talk only to men, or women should talk only to women, or parents should be the only ones to talk to their children. If anyone in the church is discovered in any transgression, we should act. Now, this doesn't eliminate the need for wisdom or discretion in how you approach somebody. This doesn't cancel out other verses like the ones in Proverbs about being careful with angry people or recognizing that a fool won't listen to good counsel. The call to gentleness here doesn't negate the anger that Jesus showed in pronouncing woes on the Pharisees or turning over the money changers' uh, tables. It doesn't rule out Paul's warning to the Corinthians that he would discipline them with a metaphorical rod if they didn't repent. No, this, this verse is more principle than practice, okay? This is important, important to get here. This is more principle than practice. He's outlining a general principle, not a specific practice, okay? Generally speaking, right? Generally speaking, when you're aware that a brother or sister has committed a sin, you should find a responsible way to address it with them. The the reason that Paul can write this like that is that most of the sins that we bump into with one another are relatively small sins, okay? White lies, self-righteousness, judgmentalism, lack of self-control, laziness, impatience, frustration, and anger. 
right? Those are things we bump into with each other all the time. Now, small sins don't stay small, and I think the reason this instruction is so wise is it's good to catch small sins when they're small, right? I mean, if, 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 to give an analogy, if the pipe under your sink is leaking, the sooner you fix it, the better. If it doesn't get fixed soon, eventually it'll be a big problem. The same with sin. Better to catch and correct it while it's small before it becomes a bigger problem. So, we bump into it, right? They sin against us. We watch them sin against somebody else. Uh, we, we bump into their sin. What are we to do? The instruction, here it is. Restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Restore means to put back in place. The, the root word really is used to describe resetting a, and sorry if you're squeamish, but resetting a dislocated or broken bone. That's the idea behind reset. Something's broken, something's out of place, it's out of balance, it's misaligned, and it needs to be realigned. You can hear actually in that word the, how, how this dovetails with the idea of keeping in step with the Spirit, right? The person that gets caught in sin has, has fallen out of step with the Spirit, and they need to get back in line. And the restore is mostly about God for sin is always first and foremost about God. We sin. The reason you or I sin is because in some way we don't trust Him, or we're not satisfied in Him, or we don't respect Him, or we're not listening to Him, or we're ignorant of what He wants us to do. And it puts strain on our relationship when we sin. And of course, if we sin against others, it dislocates and puts strain on that relationship as well. And so, we take this instruction seriously. We pray, we hope, we work to put what's out of alignment between God and each other back into proper alignment. Restore is the what we do. The gentleness is the how we do it. We do it in a spirit of gentleness. That little phrase, if believed and applied, (laughs) is what protects us from turning into the obnoxious sin police, okay? That that little phrase, don't gloss over that little phrase, in a spirit of gentleness. What does a spirit of gentleness look like when we are talking to each other about sin? Well, this is a sermon and not a seminar. (laughs) Okay, I'm going to keep this very brief. To be gentle, to get real practical, to be gentle, ask lots of questions and hold back on the accusations, okay? Did I understand that correctly? Is this what happened? Do you believe you failed in that way? Do you think there's a better way to handle that or talk to that person? To be gentle, be prepared to humble yourself and say, I struggle with that too. Share brief examples from your own life. To be gentle, offer to help them by saying things like, what could we do now? Rather than, here's what you need to do. Oh, to be gentle, pray a lot. Pray for them on the spot. Most importantly, if you want to be gentle, if we want to be gentle, remind that person of God's kindness and patience and readiness to forgive and restore them through the sacrifice of Christ. If we don't do that, everything else falls apart. We're mostly aiming to restore them to God, and that we do through helping them remember and apply the gospel afresh. Now, 
being gentle is no guarantee that the person is going to appreciate or respond well to you. Gentleness is what God calls us to to do regardless of how it goes. But a gentle approach, and I've been on the receiving end of this a ton of times. I speak from experience, not as one who's good at doing this, but has gratefully received it. A gentle approach can make a huge difference. Think of Proverbs 15.1, famous proverb, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Now, that's a proverb, not a promise, okay? But it's a proverb for a reason. <laughs> to gently restore soft words. One author, Ed Welch, he helpfully wrote in a little book which our small groups went through. It's called Caring for One Another. He, here's what he wrote. It has a whole chapter, if you want to read it, on talking to each other about sin. It's really good. But here's, here's what he writes right at, the, right at the outset of that chapter. Wise conversations, he said, will talk about sin. Though we might prefer to avoid this, not might, we would prefer to avoid this. We know that we all struggle with sin and we all need each other's help right? We all struggle with it. We all need each other's help. And he finishes, as with suffering, we offer that help very carefully. Very carefully. And that, that is what a community keeping in step with the Spirit looks like. We are not afraid to deal with each other's sin in a gentle, kind, careful way. And that is what we aim to be. With gentleness Point number two, with humility. With humility. We spent a lot of time in verse one. The rest of the passage is counsel to the one who's attempting to do verse one. Okay? (laughs) I don't know if you noticed that. The rest of this is counsel so that when you try to do verse one, you don't screw it up. That is in short order here. Most of the passage is warning and counsel to the brother or sister who's trying to help restore another brother or sister. If we undertake this task, and we should, like we're saying, there are pits to fall into all over the place, and Paul wants us to avoid those pits. Next two points in the sermon, this one and the next one, are about how to deal with our own hearts as we help somebody else with their sin. Look at the second, so it's right there in the second sentence of verse one. Right after he says to do it, he says, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So, we've identified an area of sin in another person, and now what do we do? First step, keep watch on ourselves so that we aren't tempted. Tempted to what? Could think maybe it means tempted to do whatever the brother or sister that we're trying to help is stuck with. I think, actually, verse 3 through 5, Paul has a very specific temptation in mind, and that temptation is self-righteousness. Which, again, if you understand the problems in Galatians, this was a problem. Self-righteousness, to believe that we are in some way superior to the person that we're trying to help. To, as Jesus so vividly put it, try to pull a speck out of somebody else's eye when we've got a huge log coming out of our own, right? Puritan commentator Matthew Henry wrote regarding this verse, Paul would agree with him, our business lies more at home than abroad. And that is right. 
Here you are trying to help somebody else, but you have to take stock of what's going on in here as you do. If you, if you or I, if we engage in the spirit-led ministry of helping each other bear the burden of indwelling sin, we will be tempted to sin ourselves, okay? That's just, that is just a hazard of uh, playing this game, I guess. So watch out. Keep a weather eye. How do you watch out? How do you be careful? Keep watch on yourself. Verse 3. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Okay, so here's what you're to remember and rehearse in your mind. Here we are to remember and rehearse in our mind. We must remember that apart from the life of Christ given to us by the Spirit, we are nothing. What do I have to offer anybody else? Nothing. Spiritually speaking, all of us, spiritually speaking, this is a room full of beggars. We have nothing to offer God, nothing to offer ourselves, nothing to offer each other. That is, apart from the grace of God working through us. We avoid feelings of superiority or self-righteousness by remembering that all we are, we are by grace alone. Any good in us is God in us. The same author, the Apostle Paul, wrote, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. His grace toward me was not nothing. And that's what he's saying. All that I have to offer you is what God has given me to offer you. The foundation we must lay in order to help each other with sin is the foundation of humility. And in this passage, humility is saying, I have nothing to offer you in your fight against sin besides what God supplies me with to help you. If you or I want to help other Christians, if, if we want to cultivate gentleness in our souls, we must first humble ourselves before God. So think about it this way, point of application here. You want to serve other Christians? You can serve us by what you do when nobody's around. You can serve us by giving attention to how you think of yourself. That's what Paul is saying here. That's the point he's making. You could serve us by regularly reminding yourself that you are nothing apart from the grace of God. That would be a great prayer to start each day. Lord, roll out of bed. Lord, I am nothing apart from your grace. It would serve us if you would regularly do that in your own private devotional life before the Lord. It would serve you if I would do that regularly in my own private life before the Lord, and I certainly hope to make it my aim, hope to do so even more and more. Remember that I have nothing to offer you except what the Lord gives me to offer you. That kind of heart-level work, thinking about yourself, dealing with yourself, dealing with your own heart, that is essential preparation for one another ministry. Okay, a humble heart. A humble heart is a gift to others. We have nothing to offer each other besides what God gives us to offer each other through His Spirit.
So commit again to think of ourselves honestly and humbly. And that will prepare us to help each other be gentle and kind. With humility. Point three, last point. How are we to help each other with sin? With gentleness, with humility. And point number three, with fear. With fear. I would assume that verses four and five of this passage were a little confusing at first glance. They were to me. Why is Paul telling us, like he does in verse 4, to boast in ourselves, when in just a few verses later in chapter 6, he's going to tell us that he doesn't boast in anything except the cross? And why is he saying in verse 5, we will each have to bear our own load, when he just said to bear each other's burdens? Strange, right? Fair Fair questions, but, of course, there are good answers for what he's saying. He's making different points in, in verses 4 and 5. This, this is, uh, for those of you Princess Bride fans, this is an Inigo Montoya moment. You remember this famous line from the Princess Bride. You keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. The words boast and bear your own load don't mean what you or I think they mean at first glance. What Paul is saying in verses 4 and 5 is this. If you want to keep in step with the Spirit by gently helping other Christians be restored when they sin and remaining humble as you do, you should, this is what verse 4 and 5 are about, you should keep the last day in view. Verses 4 and 5 are about the judgment seat of Christ. This is, this is my, my way of saying heavy metal Paul. He's talking about judgment day. Heavy metal Paul. He's saying, verse 4, test your work as a Christian. Your own life, apart from this other brother or sister you're trying to help. Test your own work as a Christian because it will be shown for what it is on the last day. This is how you sweep the legs right out from underneath self-righteousness, okay? Test your work as a Christian because it will be shown for what it is on the last day. Make sure it's not tainted and where it is, repent. When he says boast, not, not about sinful pride, but about the pride felt in a job well done. That's that sense of that, that word. Like you, know, you build a shed in your backyard and you're like, ah, job is done. That feels good. That's what he's talking about. And there is. There's real grace and faithfulness in the lives of Christians. Don't, don't mistake my last point that you're, you're nothing. No, no, there's real grace in your life and you are accomplishing real things that matter by the grace of God. And one day, on the last day, God is going to reward you for it. Paul wants you to keep that day in view, even though it's a bit of a mystery, right? It's a mystery that I would receive a reward for how I've lived because I know how faulty and frail I am. I know, and you know this too, you know that God deserves the credit for every good thing you or I have done. But there will be a very real reward. That's what Paul's talking about, boasting in yourself. There will be a real reward given to us on the last day. The Bible's crystal clear about that. And it won't have anything to do, this is, again, him undercutting self-righteousness here, it won't have anything to do with how you stacked up against others. This is no competition. That's why it says, the reason to be boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. He's saying, the language is a little confusing, I get that, he's saying, don't compare yourself to your neighbor who you're trying to help. When you help a brother or sister with sin, don't say in your heart, well, at least I'm not like them, Right? God won't be comparing you to them on the last day, so don't play that game. That's what verse 5 means, for each will have to bear his own load. 
each of us will give an account for our own lives. It won't matter what anybody else had done. We'll each give an account for our own lives, the good, the bad, and everything in between. And we're to keep that moment in view as we seek to do this tender, gentle, careful ministry to one another. At the judgment seat of Christ, none of us will be saying, at least I wasn't as bad as him or her. No. We won't be thinking about anyone else's sin except the fact that it's forgiven. We'll be very humbled on that last day. Listen, the record of our entire lives will be published. Does that humble you? Every thought, every action, everything we knew we shouldn't do but did, everything we knew we should have done but didn't, and every thought and action and affection and intention that glorified God, they'll all become a matter of public record. Over our sins and failures, God will pronounce, forgiven by the blood of Jesus, and we'll all cheer together. And over our gifts and graces, God will pronounce, well done, good and faithful servant. This one will humble us for sure. This one will humble us as well. Because we'll know he really deserves all the credit. All the praise will be his. Keep that moment in view as you encounter one another's sins. Keep that moment in view. That, <laughs> that has the power to keep us both humble and gentle. And it has the power to help us remain hopeful for the brother or sister who, like us, is still in the middle of being saved from sin. Think about that day when they'll be forgiven for it once and for all. End with a quote here from the Puritan John Newton. He summarizes Galatians 6, 1 through 5 in a way better than I could, so I'm ending with him rather than something I came up with. It's in a letter called On Controversy, where he's talking about how to disagree in a Christian way with other Christians, and it's applicable here. Here's what he writes. The words of David to Joab concerning Absalom are very applicable. Deal gently with him for my sake. Newton writes, the Lord loves him and bears with him. Therefore, you must not despise him or treat him harshly. The Lord bears with you likewise and expects that you should show tenderness to others from a sense of the much forgiveness you need yourself. In a little while, you will meet in heaven. He will then be dearer to you than the nearest friend you have upon earth is to you now. Anticipate that period in your thoughts. Anticipate that period in your thoughts. And though you may find it necessary to oppose his errors, 
view him personally as a kindred soul with whom you are to be happy in Christ forever. I could read that paragraph over and over and over again. In a little while, we will all meet in heaven and be dearer to one another than the nearest friend we have now. May that be our heart, Sovereign Grace Church, as as we press into the messiness of one another's lives and seek to bear the burden of indwelling sin together. May nobody in this church bear the burden of indwelling sin alone. And may God produce the fruit of the Spirit in us so that we would be humble, gentle, thoughtful, wise, and courageous as we help each other in this most important way. Let's pray that we would. Lord, thank you that your spirit is at work in us first and foremost to get our eyes on Jesus and to see the one who is sacrificed in our place for our sins so that we can know that all sin is forgiven and that one day we will be finally rescued from its influence and presence. So thank you for the hope that the life and death and resurrection of Jesus gives to those of us who are laboring under the burden of indwelling sin. And thank you that you give us other forgiven sinners, other brothers and sisters to shoulder that burden with us, to help us escape its deceptiveness, and to experience again the goodness of the gospel. That Jesus laid down his life for us. Thank you for giving us brothers and sisters so that we are not bearing this burden alone. Help us to bear it together wisely, gently, humbly, carefully, decisively, courageously. We feel our need for your help as we engage in this. So help us. We believe that you will. So we pray in faith and in Jesus' name. Amen.